0: Listening to Canberra's 2XX Community Radio. This is the program Fuzzy Logic. Today we have an interview with three researchers from the Australian National University, Ali Kimber and Catherine Grant, who are paleoclimate scientists, which means they are working to understand the history of the Earth's climate and how it works, and Beck Colvin, who is a social scientist with a special interest in how human group behaviour affects our relationships with issues such as climate change. Here's the interview. Hi, guys, thanks so much for coming in. Can I get you guys to introduce yourselves to, to start off?
1: Thanks for having us, Tom. My name's Ali Kimbrough. I'm a paleoclimate scientist. And thanks for having me on the show.
2: And thanks, Tom. My name's is Colvin. I'm a social scientist. I'm also very excited to be on the show. Thank you.
3: Hi, Tom. I'm Catherine Grant, and I'm also a paleoclimate scientist. Thank you for inviting us.
0: So maybe we we'll start off with Ali's research. that You did a, a was it a, a master's in? A PhD. In P- PhD yeah. in yeah. Um, uh, looking at stalactites and stalagmites. stalagmites, yeah. yeah to look so. at like past climate, to, to try and understand that. Could you tell us a bit about the nuts and bolts of how that yeah. works?
1: Yeah, so um, yeah, I study past climate and I use Still like mites or cave um, deposits. They're the ones that grow up from the ground to learn more about climate systems, sometimes the environment. Um, so they're really interesting tools uh, or, or archives of past climate, almost like my partner described them to me as little thumb drives that <laughs> grow in caves and um, they can pack a whole lot of information. Um, and basically, how it works is. Rain that might fall above the cave seeps in and over time can turn into rock as it drips onto the cave floor. Because this
0: is a limestone caves, right? Yeah, Where the, the
1: there's limestone or dolomite, Those different uh-huh. types of cave systems. Well. The one I've only worked in limestone caves mm. um, so far.
0: And the stalactites take what, thousands of years to develop? or?
1: Yeah, it depends. Uh, every cave is unique. Yeah. Okay. Um, it can they can grow really, really slowly. Um, so one of the samples that I worked on, it grew for 50,000 years wow. straight. But it was so slow, it'd grow about half a millimetre in 50 years. So, so it can... And it was... That, that record is about 400,000 years old.
0: Okay, so how do you use that yeah. to um, work out what the climate was like in the past? So,
1: yeah, each... Uh, so the water... Rainwater drips through the cave and it stores a chemical signature in it. So it kind of freezes what happened with that that climate um, in that little layer of stalagmite. So what you can do is go in, um, collect samples, cut them in half, and you can take out little tiny powders. So I micro mill um, powder samples out. Of the stalagmite, and then run it through some magical instruments, <laughs> a mass <laughs> spectrometer, um, and I've used some other instruments to measure different chemical components. But out of that, you can gain a record of how rainfall changed in the past. Um, sometimes you can look at temperature, depending on uh, where the location is. Um, but I worked in Indonesia in Sulawesi, and so the fieldwork's awesome. <laughs> but yeah,
0: so. W- can you tell us about what, what sort of chemical signal you might be looking for? Yes, yeah,
1: so we look at oxygen isotopes, mainly. Okay, different uh, types of oxygen. Yeah, and okay. the way that works is with I mean, essentially, so much is being recorded into that stalagmite, so it's our job to figure out what's being recorded, how it's happening, and, and make sure we get an accurate signal. So, Over the years, it's pretty it's still a pretty young field, maybe, but you know 10 years old it's really took off Um, but oxygen isotopes are really powerful and especially in the tropics um, although there's other things that can interact in a a climate system that affects them it's often um, related to rainfall amount or the rainfall system so if it's a heavier signal like if you get um, heavier isotopes uh-huh. That little powder. Usually so little
0: heavier, little types of oxygen. Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> More of
1: the heavier types. Okay. Um, that's it. for our side, um, an indication of it being drier.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. And so so you can look at rainfall patterns back over, what, 50,000 years? Uh, what? Hundreds of
1: thousands. Hundreds of thousands. So, yeah, the work I did is um, about 400,000.
0: Is that because you can find 400,000-year-old stalactites have been growing yeah. for that long or, or some of them stopped growing some of them, them stopped growing yeah okay.
1: so the yeah the i think the longest continuously growing one was uh-huh. that i've worked on was 50,000 years right um, but you can
0: tell when they stopped growing can yeah. you yeah and, that's, and then...
1: that's what makes these really special right. tools cuz you can precisely date them um, radiometric dating uranium thorium it's um and that's you can't do that with a lot of other proxies so right. it makes them really unique that you can say i know it's this old so it's
0: a bit like rings on a tree for instance and you can say this tree ring is from this year or you can say this ring on the stalagmite is from this year yeah yeah
1: and you can take many dates and say and then
0: or or like a geologist looking at sedimentary layers and how they can look at a certain sedimentary layer right around the world and and match them up yeah say this is from the same period because of certain signals in the in the sediments. Yeah, yeah. so it's yeah. that sort of thing. Exactly. Okay. Yeah.
1: Cool. So, quite a few different types of proxies. Like you mentioned, tree rings, um, ice cores are really good for tracking changes in climate, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But some of the most powerful tools in paleoclimate are marine sediment cores. And uh, luckily, we have Catherine here who's <laughs> done a lot of work on those.
0: Okay, so could you tell us a bit about your research? Sure. Oh,
3: so I work on deep sea sediments. Um, so as Ali said, these are just great records of past climate change because um, the sediment tends to accumulate very slowly on the seafloor, and then um, as it accumulates it's basically um, it's less likely to be eroded, unlike say, um, continental. Um, archives Uh you know so it's just locked away in the sea floor and and it just slowly builds up over time Uh and then in terms of how far back in time you can go, that basically depends on how far down you can drill, drill down in that right. um, area. So, on, so the, on
0: the ocean bottom, you're having mm. eroded materials from from the land, I guess, or from the ocean.
3: Um, well, obviously, if you're on the continental shelf and yeah. close to the land, yes, you'll yeah. get more um, terrigenous material there. Okay. Um, in the open ocean, you'll get dust. So right. um, airborne dust that, dust that actually settles over time. Okay, so
0: say there's a big windstorm in central australia and it blows yes. stuff out in, into the pacific yeah, then and, maybe that would settle down and you can
3: see that okay. but also um what's one of the most powerful tools is um microfossils so obviously all the marine plankton oh. when they die a lot of them uh-huh. have shells that are preserved yeah. and actually what makes up the bulk of a lot of these deep sea sediments are right. uh, these calcite shells yeah um so if you um go say to the middle of um the ocean the pacific in particular um and bring up some of those sediment cores. It they actually look like toothpaste. Mm. It's just this pure white ooze because it's mostly composed of these um, tiny calcite microfossil so shells.
0: So is, is it somewhat similar in composition to toothpaste? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I guess yes. Yeah. So it's like a lot of calcite in toothpaste, but no. Obviously, there's a lot more in that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Now, similar to Ali... What's so,
0: so what's happening is year after year, all of these marine <laughs> organisms and dust and...
3: Uh, everything is just, just settling f- down. Settling
0: down from the ocean and building up layer after layer after layer. And then you can drill down and exactly. get a core that has those layers yes. and analyse what happened year after year. Yes. Right. Going yeah. back how far?
3: Well, it, it depends um, how far... Um, how quickly your sediment was accumulating mm. and how far you drill down. So obviously, if you've got an area of, say, what we call a sediment drift, where you get quite a high rate of sediment accumulation, in, say, 10 metres of core, you maybe got, I don't know, you've got a certain amount of time, whereas in a, in a place where you've got a very low accumulation rate, if you go down 10 metres, you're going to go back further in time because it's a slower Do you have any idea? Rate. Are we talking a thousand years, uh, a So to give years? an example... Um, Oh, well, I mean, I'm working on cores that we got sediment going back to 5 million years. Okay. Um, some, they don't go far back that far. Others... And is um, that 10
0: meters of core? Or no, 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 that
3: was that was 130 meters. So, okay,
0: so you drilled down 130 meters into yes. on the seafloor. Yeah. yeah,
3: but you can, I mean, we've got capability that you can drill down up to 5 kilometers right. in the seafloor. Um, below the seabed. But you're
0: you're not looking at those really long. Um,
3: fields, I'm not. That's I'm not going back that far in time. Yeah. Um, but but paleoclimate people do. There are, a lot of people are interested in, pretty much the past 60 million years. Uh uh-huh. you said field. you can go back
0: 150 million. Is how far back?
3: Oh or? oh, I'm not sure entirely. Like how okay. far you can go back. Yeah. I mean, it depends. It depends on the location and um, people do seismic surveys before they go and drill to have a look at the the seabed layers and they can kind of work out from that, okay, we're likely to go back this far or maybe we're going to have, because if you have an unconformity, you know, maybe there was um, a break Mm. in the sedimentation or something's been, or there's been a layer that's been eroded and then you accumulate again, then maybe you're going back even further. And can I jump
1: in, it can get really challenging with those really deep, Cores because they get so compressed, right? Mm. That, like, that's a lot
0: of sediment <laughs> on yes. top of it. So. So why is that a challenge? Because the layers are really thin, or because they get yeah. messed up? Or? Well,
3: when you go back, when you go down that deep, yeah. it starts becoming consolidated. Mm. So it's almost turned into like limestone, like solid. So drilling it can mm. be oh, okay. um, just logistically technically. and technically yeah. a challenge.
0: Okay, so so I interrupted you. You were about to say. Oh, something. I think
3: I was going to talk about how. The, um, the microfossils I was talking about, that mm. are, so basically the marine plankton that then get preserved in the sediment as mm. microfossils, um, they're great recorders of past climate change right. um, because when they build their shells, yep. the chemistry of the shells incorporates the chemistry and the temperature um, of the seawater at that time. Okay. And so those signals are then preserved in these calcite shells just in the same way that the climate signals are preserved in the calcite sphere how,
0: how does it record the temperature?
3: Um, well, there are a few different ways. One is simply um, often, well, if you remember your periodic table, uh, magnesium is in the same group as calcium. Okay. And so sometimes magnesium is substituted into the calcite shell instead of calcium, and that substitution is temperature dependent. Okay. So people can... Um, look at, like, the modern relationship and they can see the relationship between how much, what, what's the ratio of magnesium to calcium in the shell? Right. Basically, the higher the the relationship, the, the warmer the temperature. So and the it, more
0: magnesium, the warmer the water was? Yes. Yeah, okay.
3: So wow. that, but there there are other techniques as well. Yeah. Um, but that's just an example. And we use oxygen isotopes as well, as Ali was saying. And I also Something. use
1: um, magnesium-calcium ratios. And so you can learn, you can basically back up your signal with um, some search using these other um, chemical elements that you can find right
0: have various different um, techniques that hopefully show the same result yeah, give you the yeah, same idea the, of the temperature yeah. and then would you, would people in your fields looking at um, stalagmites and people looking at seed floor sediments do you look at each other's research and see if that matches up
3: yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually,
1: I'll, I'll be citing some of Catherine's work in a paper that i put forward very soon. So I can, I can tell you a bit about where all these nitty-gritty details and stalagmites led to. I worked on basically ice ages to warm periods, so we call mm-hmm. those glacial periods and interglacials. Um, and the Earth has gone through those cycles about every 100,000 years, roughly. Because
0: your particular interest is looking at when those are occurring?
1: Mm-hmm. Or- um, yeah, in a way, it, they're just really they're really interesting periods to learn more about and understand because uh, the Earth is going through these major changes. You know, it's going from a really cold period to really warm period, and it's happening relatively quickly. Um, lots of things are changing: sea levels. Oh, you're looking at lot. the periods
0: of change between yeah. the the ice age yeah. and the warm age or yeah, the warmer period. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I produced a record that covers about four of those cycles, mm. and yeah, to see in the area that. I work in, in Sulawesi, it's like this center of action for huge climate systems. So, you know, people talk about El Niño and La Niña, that system in the Pacific, it kind of converges over Indonesia, and then there's kind of an equivalent in the Indian Ocean also coming together and then you have this massive monsoon system you know, that brings monsoon rainfall up to China, down through Indonesia to northern Australia. So it's this big center of energy and we don't know a lot about it, what makes it tick. Um, so being able to look at this system, and uh, specifically the monsoon system, how did it respond to warming? How did it respond to changes in sea level? Um, so I was able to look at some of those questions my work
0: and then and so you're citing catherine's yeah. work in in with that research or? yeah
1: so what i found yeah. is um basically when uh during ice ages everything gets a lot colder a lot of the sea water gets frozen into ice sheets so sea level drops about 120 meters and that dramatically changes uh, the geography basically of indonesia so there's these um, shallow continents—they they sit about minus fifty meters below sea level now. Sea level now.
0: Continents or sea? Or They're like sea floor. The
1: maritime shelves. Okay. Basically. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, when the sea level drops below that level, these become exposed, and it's it's a, a new it comes land. Comes dry mass. land. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and that's been—it's a really important feature, you know, climatically, also for human migration. Like, it provided this way for people to walk, you know long distances through the Indonesia and but what it did to the climate system is a big question and we saw that when those shelves were exposed it it looks like it turned off the monsoon or really weakened it severely so right. the climate system was dramatically different um, and so understanding like what makes it something that big a big system like that tick when we can show that rainfall dramatically decrease during that time period and then i'm working with climate modelers who are trying to you know model past conditions and these major changes in the environment and see if they can accurately show you know the changes that happen then they um, can trust the models predict future changes so they're, they're like trying to text. they're trying to
0: create a model that explains the data that you and other people are finding like why would rainfall yeah. stop there and what what is the weather yeah. System doing.
1: Yeah, what's actually causing this decrease? And so it's a bit back and forth that they're both informing each other. I think it's it's a really good union of different communities in climate science, and it totally essential because you need you know there's evidence of past changes, but then you have to know some systems behind it to see what caused that change, and that's the only way to know how to predict changes um, that might come rising sea levels. By understanding
0: what's happened in the past and trying to really work out how the Earth's climate system works. Yeah. yeah. Which we which we're far from fully understanding. And especially
1: rainfall and monsoon patterns, which you know so much of the world's population rely on. Um so that system is really important.
0: And and trying to understand what um might happen in the future with with increasing temperatures. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So I, I cited Catherine's work because she's, okay. she's done some work on sea level rise and so me being able to find that link between sea level change and it kind of changing the phase of whether the monsoon was in a, a wet mode or a drier mode um and I could kind of look at the timing of that so I sea level records were incredibly important to right
0: to and okay and difference. so Catherine yeah. you've, you've got um that's something you look at as sea level. That's one of the things I look course, at yeah. is and monsoons and yes. Yeah, okay.
3: Over long periods of time, the yeah. glacial interglacial cycles, yes.
0: That I and mean, that's interesting for me that you guys are both here in at both at the ANU mm-hmm. in here in Canberra in the same room and you're citing um, Catherine's work. I mean, there's researchers all over the world yeah. looking at yes. this stuff. So what why is it that you'd particularly be looking at Catherine's work rather than someone in Chile. Right, or,
1: right. You know. Well, I used uh, there's a few records of sea mm. level all of you know, that people are producing all over. Um, Canva's a very special location. ANU in particular, there's a lot of people um, at the top, you know, of that field trying to answer this so question. Is, so it's really, U it, <laughs> for okay. me. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. so, there's some,
0: so there's some really good research going on oh, definitely. here And yeah. ANU. Yeah. Okay, well that's, that's yeah. nice to hear. And it's
1: not in isolation. Like, mm. you have to look at other record sea level records that are yeah. produced and mm. you know if they don't match then
3: but there mm-hmm. aren't actually that many sea no. level records over the time frames that Ali's looking at. Right. So there really are only a few you can choose yeah. and okay. and look at those. And as Ali said, yeah, there's a sea level group at ANU that's producing some world leading stuff. And um, but also I mean I'm going to be using Ali's Beliphone um, records because again they're pretty unique they're really special and and that's the thing if it's a really unique and a really special record you're gonna use it
0: right yeah do you guys all know each other and at the end you everyone working on on climate stuff I I guess would yes pretty
3: much yeah and but the the paleoclimate community in general I mean that's the nice thing everybody um, shares their data Mm. you know if you produce data you publish it yeah and then If you want some data, you will just look online. Maybe you've read a paper and you think, I really want to use their paper. You can just go and look it up. Um, If you can't find the data or even if you do find the data but you want to contact the author, you just email them and uh, most people are just great. They're open to co- collaboration. Um, it's because it's I think because of the multidisciplinary nature of the field, mm. you know, even though you have people that are specializing in, say, you've got geochemists, you've got um, modelers, um, you've got paleontologists, you still need to know a little bit about all the different fields. And so it just makes it a very um, a collaborative uh, and a really good field to work in.
0: Right. Yeah. And that, that's something that struck me about scientists and perhaps academics in general when I was doing my honours research, that how helpful people were, that I could email someone, you know, at a different university yeah. and just ask them questions and they'd, they'd respond to me and help me the best yeah. that they could and, you know, walk into different offices around um, the university. And yeah, just, exactly. just ask people for their advice and their expertise and I think because yeah.
3: we're all really interested in it. And yeah. working towards the same goal.
1: And yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. it's great. Its best. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Did you, did you want to
3: you talk about rates? Of C- yeah, did you want to ask M- me about M- rates? <laughs>
0: <laughs> rates of um, sea level rise. Yes,
3: in the past.
0: In the past. Yeah. Oh, like, yes, tell yeah. us about what, okay. what do you know about that.
3: So, um, well, we've just actually had a paper out recently okay. in um, Nature Communications. It was led by two of my colleagues at ANU, um, uh, Dr. Fiona Hibbert and Professor Elko Rowling. And so it's a group of us, actually, international team collaborating on this paper. And we looked at changes in sea level 125,000 years ago. So that was the last interglacial period. So, So we're in the... We're like currently in, in an interglacial, and, the, and which started about 10,000 years ago, so it was the Holocene. The interglacial before that was um, the Eemian, which was 125,000 years ago. So that was the last time that sea levels were similar to or above present-day levels. And global average temperatures Because were, it was
0: warm. It's like we're in a warm period now. We're in... Less, yes. So there's less ice in Antarctica yes, exactly. and in, yes. uh, in the Arctic. Yeah. And m- into bed, I suppose, as well. I don't know if that makes a difference. But mm. um, so the sea level is higher because all the else has melted and that's exactly. in the ocean, right? Yes, exactly. And so 125,000 years ago was another it period was where it to was warmer, yes. and was less ice, yes. and higher sea levels. Okay. Yeah.
3: And the temperatures were similar to or maybe, you know, one to two degrees right. above present. So that's why a lot of people are interested in looking at it because the temperatures were similar to or slightly warmer today. Obviously, it wasn't exactly the same as today. Um, the Earth's position relative to the sun was slightly different, but also atmospheric carbon dioxide levels were much, much lower. Um,
0: than than they are now?
3: Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay,
0: so there's less carbon dioxide. Then yeah. are you talking about um, pre-industrial revolution levels? Oh, or? I'm talking
3: about now. So now we're at, what is it, we're over at 400 okay. ppm, whereas it was at 280 ppm, roughly. Before
0: the industrial at, revolution? At the, no,
3: at the last, over interglacial, interglacial cycles. Uh-huh. Um, Atmospheric CO two varies between about one hundred eighty and two eighty PPM.
0: Okay. And where were we at before the Industrial Revolution and we started burning coal and
3: probably petrol? about two forty.
0: Two forty. Okay. So it was in that typical range. Yeah. And what we've done is by we've burning all these fossil up. fuels is, yes. is taken it right out of the the range the that natural we've seen range that for we would the last
3: expect for the last three three million years. For the last
0: three million we haven't seen. So it's it's been as high as it is now, what, three million years ago? Yeah,
3: about 3.3 million years ago was the last time. But even then there's a lot of uncertainty because it's quite difficult to reconstruct atmospheric CO2 when you go that far back because we don't have ice cores going back that far with CO2 conveniently trapped in bubbles. So Mm. people look at um, um, boron isotopes in in these microfossils, uh, marine microfossils, they look at leaf stomata, I think. I'm mm. not sure of all the details. but Anyway, it's, anyway, it's been so, a long time,
0: millions of years since we've yes. seen these sort of levels. Yeah, exactly. And, and, but you're, you're talking about 125,000 yes. years ago. So we
3: looked at sea level changes then, yeah. and we found that sea levels rose up to 10 metres above present day levels. But what was interesting was the rates of change in sea level. And, for, um, and sea level rose at up to three metres per century. So right. if you put that into context... So um, that's
0: quite rapid, even... Well,
3: at the moment, for the last 150 years yeah. or so, sea level's rising at 0.3 metres per century. So 30 centimetres a century. Um, so,
0: OK, so that's very stable.
3: So, so would, yeah. at the moment...
0: Yeah.
3: Has, I wouldn't say it's stable. It's rising yeah. and it's accelerating. But what we're saying is that it was an order of magnitude faster than yes. that okay. during the last interglacial, and yeah. that was without any anthropogenic forcing. So it shows you the kind of rates of rise that the the climate system can do right. naturally. Yes. Okay. Without any anthropogenic. Right. So so this study provides some context mm. um, and and key information for modelers to say, look, you know, this these are the kind of rates of rise we can see that you can see. And yes.
0: Have you do you have any idea about what caused that? Rise?
3: Well, um, that main rise was due to melting of Antarctica. Okay. Actually, so that was another um, key finding with the okay. study. We could actually attribute that rise to melting of the Antarctic right. ice sheets.
0: And and you know why? What? Which? Because the planet was warming,
3: right? Or... Um. So it was warmer then. Yeah. Um. But well, like I say, it was equivalent to or just slightly warmer than today. Right. So, um, I mean, what what's interesting is that ice sheet modelers who've been looking at Antarctica. There's um, a study that came out, um, and they um, developed this model, an ice cliff instability, and they showed that, so when you have an, uh, um, an ice shelf, say on Antarctica, and it's basically flows towards the sea and it forms these ice shelves, um, they be- become unstable um, with, say, warming, and especially warming of the water underneath them that melts them from underneath, mm-hmm. and they can... Dramatically collapse, okay. and, when, and they're basically buttressing the land-based ice sheet. So right. once you melt those um, floating ice shelves, uh-huh. it means the land-based ice can flow out to sea much more rapidly. Oh, okay. So that's flowing so, off
0: the mountains in Antarctica and into yes. the ocean. Right
3: now, um, some modeling was done. It's still being considered quite contentious. But the interesting thing is that the kind of rates of sea level rise they were seeing with their model is exactly what we're seeing with our data here. Um, it's just we haven't seen, um, it's these, these kind of processes aren't being modeled in in the current models for predictions, um, for sea level rise predictions. I guess because they're, um, they're based on observations of sea level change, which only go back to the 90s for the satellite data and the last hundred or so years for historical data. So that's why the paleo record of sea level change is so important. Mm.
0: So the, the, the main findings of your research...
3: So the main findings was that sea levels um, at the last interglacial rose at rates of up to three metres okay. per century. Right. And that this was coming from Antarctica.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so that basically... Means that we should be worried about fast <laughs> well, rapid sea level rise. Particularly at the yeah. moment, because at the moment we're yeah. seeing
3: melts at both Antarctica mm. and Greenland at the same time. Right. Whereas in the past it was like Antarctica melted first, then followed Greenland. Right. Okay. Now we're seeing both melting at both. So there was, really, there the,
0: was quite time. rapid sea level rise—three meters a century. Three meters per century. While it looked like it was happening a lot slower than it is now. Yeah. So we're, we're quite likely to see.
3: An acceleration,
0: an acceleration of sea level rise, like a great acceleration.
3: Um, well, that's interesting because that's what um, some of the predictions are coming out in um, a recent report mm. that came out from the IPCC, and they looked at um, sea level projections for different emissions pathways and the most likelihood, um, and they're suggesting about one meter at the if we continue with the emissions at the moment. Um, about a metre or just over one metre by the end of the century. Mm. But then by the end of 2,300, yeah. they're saying up to about five metres five meters, of sea right. level by, rise by then, because there's going to be this acceleration of Which sea would level mean, rise. I guess
0: um, maybe Bangladesh might be largely underwater and a lot of Pacific islands would be going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, one metre would be enough to what cover yeah. a lot of Less, Bangladesh, would
1: it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, One metre, was it that the chance, I mean, high tide would result in a flood
0: right
3: Um, well yeah but that's the other the thing that the other uh, the other thing that the report came out was that the frequency of extreme events because these Mm. are the things when you're looking at coastal flooding are maybe more significant these you know what used to be like one percent one 100 year event, Mm. you know one per century is now going to be much more frequent possibly even annually yeah
0: yeah
1: and Mm. low low line islands throughout the pacific and indo-pacific are
0: yeah, they're the most threatened. Yeah, okay. Well that sounds um <laughs> terrifying. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, maybe we should go into how this relates to Catherine. No, Beck. Ka- Beck, Beck, sorry, Beck Beck's work on um uh trying to communicate this science and the problems to what the public and policy makers, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got these scientists that are seeing the finding this terrifying results from their work and how I mean how do you see the the translation of this into um, public understanding and policymaker understanding and action working
2: out Totally complex. Yeah. And it's challenging as well. Like, I'm kind of tempted to say that we go and find people and we cut them in half and like count the layers in their bodies (laughs) to work out what's going on. But it is. It's really complicated. And there's so much that's wrapped up in how people understand climate change. Mm. So I'm not trained in the sciences that these folks are. And I have to trust that what they're saying is following the best standards of rigorous science and i do trust that because i trust in the institution of how we've got this incredible knowledge base that's built year after year um through the collaboration that they're talking about but everyone and has to have that certain amount of trust and certain people
0: well, I've, I've, don't I mean, <laughs> i've heard it said that um that you know, within the scientific community that the idea that you develop some conspiracy around a subject as big as something like climate change and that that would be allowed to fly as shows a real misunderstanding of what the scientific community is like yeah. and that because everyone's always trying to prove each other wrong and that's from my experience that's
3: it. Yeah. like just doing
0: an honors research <laughs> and mm-hmm. doing my presentation and everyone's trying to pick holes in what you're mm-hmm. doing and that everyone wants to be the person that makes the breakthrough that, that you know that shows that everyone else is wrong and I've mm. got it right, right? And yeah, so it's it's not while everyone's working together to, to develop that understanding. Also, mm. people are very critical of everything mm. else that everyone that's is saying. But, but, yeah, that's yeah. what's
3: good about it that yeah. we can be critical. But then yeah. you'll see um, as evidence grows, consensus builds. Yeah, you know, in in areas. But it's a slow process, isn't it?
0: Like it,
3: it can be, but yeah. then yeah. I mean the evidence. For climate change and global warming, but it's I think I think that's the strength of it. Like the yeah. like
0: science builds a little bit by little bit, and with people yes. questioning it constantly, yes. mm-hmm. and it's rather than just saying, "Oh, I have the answers and this is what mm-hmm. it is. I know 100 mm-hmm. percent." Yeah, um, they're tested over. It's and tested, over. And, yeah, tested exactly. and tested before yeah. people yeah. start to be really confident. It takes yeah. a long yes. time of of different, many many hundreds and thousands of people right doing research like you guys and everything aligning and. Um, supporting the same basic idea before people start to really trust it. Yeah. And that's, I would say, that's that's what's happened, right?
2: Mm-hmm. We're in a really unique place with the knowledge on climate change as well. So what would be incorrect in scientific terms is to take a single study and say, this gives us proof of X. Yeah. And that's why the way Catherine was talking about sea level rise rates She wasn't saying sea level is therefore going to increase at three Uh metres per century or whatever. Her point is this tells us that there's something else potentially going on in the climate system and we need to start looking at how that interacts with all these other effects. And so that's where the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is really unique because they don't do research, they don't do primary research, they take all the research that's been done And say, if we've got all of these different lines of evidence that might be pointing in slightly different directions or some all in the same direction, what can we really learn from that? And that's why we've got this certainty about climate change. And that has, like Catherine was saying, we've known this for decades, actually, like We've had the knowledge, you can see it in the internal memos from the oil companies that have been leaked. They knew what was going on decades ago and they suppressed that information, intentionally set out to misinform and confuse people. Mm -hmm. But we have known.
0: Very um, much like um, the conversation around smoking. Yeah, but
3: that's what I think about because at least with that, people then just accepted when there was the consensus of oh look this is really going to damage your health and then everyone was on board and it changed but it seems now with climate change
2: well, there's it, this
3: question of oh do you believe it as if it's a belief thing
2: but i think it was not dissimilar I, with smoking when first oh, okay. it first came out stigma. so yeah. as i understand it took about a generation of people so the smokers mm. who were embedded in that way of being and heard this information resisted it and the tobacco yeah. companies companies mounted their misinformation efforts We're seeing similar trends with climate change where public opinion is not in a linear and completely predictive way but Mm. wrapped up in age as well. Yeah, so it's this
3: generation coming through now that's... Yeah,
2: it's not controversial for young people to accept that the science is telling us that the climate is changing because of human actions for people who are older and who lived their lives who worked in the coal industry or invested in stocks or did whatever contributed to the types of economic activities that have had the unfortunate consequence of contributing to climate change it's a much bigger point of friction with their way mm. of life and with their way of understanding the world to come to accept this yeah. and so it's really complex um, <laughs> it's, it's not a matter of communicating the science, it's incredible like I've learned a lot from listening mm-hmm. to you both this morning talking about your research and that's a big part of it and being able to hear how the research is done how we mm-hmm. know we can connect what's going on in caves to past climate and how that relates to sea level rise mm-hmm. and how all of that gets put together is really important and that's what gives us a scientific knowledge base. But then when we take the science and we go to policy and we go to society, it becomes another kettle of fish ear bones <laughs> altogether.
0: So, what, I mean, what would you... People are quite resistant to to hearing the news from scientists about, about what we're facing and what we're doing to the climate because of it's it, it confronting to the the way they live and the fact that we... we mostly drive cars in in rich countries and are very consumptive of energy largely based on fossil fuels mm-hmm. so but for people why do people struggle with that
2: so there's a few things you can look at the issue of climate change itself and it's been described by cognitive psychologists as the perfect issue for humans to not grapple with uh-huh. mm. and that's because it's distant in time and space not so much now but certainly when it first entered the agenda big time in the 90s we were talking about polar bears losing their habitat we often talk about what's going to happen by the year 2100 Mm. like most people's minds think on a time horizon as far as a normal mortgage goes. Like that's kind of how (laughs) our brains work. Mm. So talking about the year 2100, we might as well as be talking about the year 3000 in a lot of cases. And people are much
0: more interested in something that's happening right now, an emergency Mm. right now. So the the bushfires happening in Australia right now, it seemed like the perfect example of what you're talking about Mm. and the reaction from, say, um, Scott Morrison and others that, that, we want to concentrate on some, the emergency that's happening right now and don't think about the bigger, more important emergency that's going to play out over hundreds of years, you know, or tens of years and hundreds of years into the future that's actually going to see much, much bigger consequences. But people, it's much easier for people to understand someone's house is burning down today. Yeah. That they're going to focus on that generally.
2: Yeah, right? absolutely. and. There's other factors that play into it as well. So we can think about how it's a complex issue to think about. And then we can think about how there's lots of reasons that we might not want to accept what this evidence is telling us because of how it points to the need for change to the status quo. For those of us who are comfortable in the status quo, that's a threat to us, just as climate change is perceived as a threat to people who are maybe a little bit more attuned to sea level rise or extreme weather or bushfires or whatever the sorts of effects that are being enhanced by climate change happen to be but then we've also got this additional level that complicates it and it's where and this is what my research really looks into but it's where climate change and other topical issues like climate change get wrapped up in who we are as people Mm -hmm. and so we can have this Base level of the substance of the issue. And this is where you might have people who don't really perceive the risk in the same way as others, or people who have vested interests and in bad faith as spreading misinformation, which is certainly the case with climate change. The next level up is where we don't really think about the substance of the issue, but we think about what do people like me think about climate change? So, therefore, what should I think about climate change? For those of us that have grown up in a particular subculture where we tend to have sort of accepting attitudes towards science in general, where we might think perhaps there are some consequences of unfettered economic development and we need to think about those. All of these ways of thinking that align with who we are as people, it's really easy to say, yes, I care about climate change without Mm. even engaging with those deeper substance levels, because Mm. we can say that fits with my identity as a person. But the other side of that is that there's... You could say another
0: way of of saying that is people just tend to believe what the people around them believe.
2: Yeah, and that's all of us. So I'm not saying it's some other people that do that. All of us do it.
0: Yeah, so a lot of people believe in climate change because that's their their social circles Mm -hmm. circles that believe in climate change and vice versa.
2: And it it just so happens to be that there is an evidence base. It's strong Mm -hmm. enough that we know that there is one side, and I'm doing air quotes there, but one side of this that does have the balance of evidence on their side. Mm -hmm. That complicates it because when it does get wrapped up in this social way of being, and we Mm -hmm. talk about terms like belief, Mm -hmm. which are really Mm -hmm. complicated terms to use in um, issues that are based on science Mm -hmm. because we tend to not put belief and scientific thinking into the same basket. But when it reaches that Mm -hmm. social space, these are the dynamics that emerge. And so we see a lot of the issues with how we grapple with climate change comes down to this question of, is climate change something that me and my group care about? Or is it something Mm -hmm. that that other group cares about, and I don't like them, so I'm going to oppose what they think? There's a whole lot of research that shows that in Australia, climate change is really wrapped up in our political identities. Mm -hmm. So it's really clear to pull it apart across the left-right political divide and you can predict what people are likely to think about climate change based on their politics. Meta-analyses of public opinion data have shown Australia is second only to the United States in terms of how far down this path we are. Mm-hmm. So the US is worse than Australia in mm-hmm. how it's wrapped up in politics.
0: So people... Um, that vote for the Republican Party in the United States are far more likely to not believe in climate change than people that vote for the Democrats. That's what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm actually <laughs> from the US. Originally, <laughs>
1: yeah. recently minted citizenship here. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, it's... I, th- I like to think it's changing. It is, um, yeah. Great. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, yeah, historically, I think... It's really interesting what Beck's been talking mm-hmm. about because you get these kind of socioeconomic environments that help propel people's opinions on things mm-hmm. and their um, community opinions. So, yeah, it's, it's a product of so many factors. And mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting that it plays out to be politically polarizing mm-hmm. with something that is so... Um, evidence-based in science.
3: Mm. But just to comment on that, because I've been out here six and a half years. I came from the UK. And what really surprised me coming out to Australia was in the UK, you didn't have this, oh, does climate change exist debate that had finished like 10, 20 years ago. Mm. You know, people were moving on. And so it had broken through that um, um, political polarity. And it was across the board and people accepted it. And that's just the UK, I think northern Europe in general. Mm. Yeah. And people were doing something about it. Um, and so to come back here and to be questioned by so many people and to see this debate in mainstream media, oh is climate change happening? I thought, what's have I gone back in time? Mm. What's happened? So that's so that just shows that, you know, it can cross across um, the political divides, yeah. but it just hasn't here.
0: Beck, do you have any insight for us in why that might Because is it to do with the industries that we have in Australia or
2: yeah, I th- so this isn't something that I have personally researched, yeah. but from what I've read from others who have looked into it, the prominence of the fossil fuel industry in Australia has played a part. So we've also had a really difficult political culture where the way in which issues around environment and climate have emerged have become wedge political issues. There's the interests there, like the Genuine bad faith vested interests doing bad faith things to obscure the science, and then there's also that next level again, which is how we behave. I like to think of the scripts that we follow, the predictable lines that we all say that we don't necessarily think about terribly deeply, but it keeps us locked into these positions that stop us getting to a, a better point where we're actually grappling with the science. But Ali mentioned, I hope it's changing. Mm -hmm. And there actually is some really promising um, indication in Australia that this is shifting. So if we look at aggregate public opinion on climate change in Australia, just six years ago, seven years ago, Mm -hmm. (laughs) see, I'm not a hard scientist, I can't count. (laughs) In 2012, public opinion, the proportion of people who said climate change is a serious issue and we need to do something about it was at about... 30-something percent, like 32, 33, whatever percent. That was at its lowest. This year, it's up at 60 percent. Wow, That's been a really substantial change. We're also seeing shifts in these identity groups or these groups of belonging in how climate change is starting to break away from this idea of this is who I am as a person, so therefore my opinion on climate change is X. Mm -hmm. You can look at groups like Farmers for Climate Action that have filled this gap between What we used to see, which was a fair bit of resistance toward the reality of climate change in the agricultural industry and Mm -hmm. environmental advocates on the other side, Farmers for Climate Action is starting to bridge that gap and making it the way I see it. They're creating a vehicle for farmers to be able to Mm -hmm. say, I'm a proud farmer and I care about this. That's not the sort of line that you would hear people saying half a decade ago. No,
1: almost like a new community is being structured. Yeah, exactly. That identity. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so it's a new place mm-hmm. that you can belong and you can hold these views. The other thing that's interesting in that regard is polling on voters for the National Party. So, this being the party that tends to perform the best in regional areas. In 2017, I have to remember the numbers. In 2017, 29% of nationals voters thought climate change wasn't happening. In 2018, it's 15%. That mm-hmm. is an incredible change. Imagine yeah. if you saw that rate of change um, in some statistical analysis you were doing. So yeah.
0: 30% mind. of people didn't think it was happening, and it's dropped to 15%. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah.
2: Something's going on, yeah. and I think what we're seeing is that. There are these shifts toward climate change moving out of these politicized, polarized trenches. Mm. So groups like mm. Farmers for Climate Action are starting to do this. There's other groups like the Investor Group on Climate Change, which is, again, an, mm. we can talk about them as not being the usual suspects. Yes. Where we get people who aren't the usual suspects talking about an issue, it starts to move it away from these polarized pieces of trench warfare. Mm. Um, The investors,
1: I think I went to a talk not that long ago where someone spoke on that. And it's people that recognize that there is some economic benefit in renewables and Mm. like, the, the issues and economic downfall of climate change is too high, right? right? So like, Mm. it's crossing that, you know, the pocket border, Mm. or the wallets.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But to link that back, actually, to something that we were talking about earlier, science has played a key role in this shift. So one of the issues that's catalyzed this change in the finance sector has been the fact that we do have this bit by bit accumulation of knowledge and confidence in what the science is saying. Because of the legal frameworks that we have in Australia, So this is kind of a circuitous route to get to the point, but company directors can be held legally liable for not using all the information at their disposal to make responsible decisions. So there was a legal opinion a couple of years ago that said, we've got enough information about climate change now that company directors need to start thinking about climate change. And so that's fed into this climate risk discourse, which is really landing in the finance industry because they're thinking, oh, my God, if we're investing in assets that are going to be affected by sea level rise and we're ignoring that evidence and doing it anyway, we can be held liable. The other thing is it also takes into account transition risks. So if we're investing in industries that are probably going to be wound back because they contribute to the problem of climate change, we're liable for not taking that information into account as well. Mm -hmm. And so this starts to show how we have this, it might be the caves and it might be the marine sediments, but they're so important. Then niche aspects of a hugely complicated system that come together, they get critiqued at the deepest levels of rigor Mm. that we can have for what our species can do to make knowledge. And it filters through and it affects our institutions, it affects policy, it affects the way we think and what we do, because it must. We've mm-hmm. got to listen to science. Mm-hmm. It's done so much for us, for our species. Mm-hmm. And I hope, I think we're starting to listen to it now.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: That's good news. <laughs> okay. I need to wrap it up now. So, yeah. do you guys have any last thoughts that you'd like to put forward? Any yeah good ideas?
1: Um, I think conversations like this are really... Great. And they should happen a lot more often. Um, Sometimes it's everyone, you know, can get kind of tunnel vision into what they're doing and, you know, picking what they think is important about an issue. But I've learned, also learned a lot just sitting here today with people. I, you know, already know and know what they (laughs) do. But when it comes together, you you see more clearly a bit. So, yeah, thank you.
2: Well, I'll just agree with what Ali said (laughs) because I do. And even we have the social science research. It shows some of the best ways to help people grapple with complex issues is having conversations among trusted people so it mm-hmm. doesn't work mm-hmm. is seeing someone who you is from a different group from you saying you're a terrible person listen to me agree right. with me just go mm. not only am i not going to agree with you i'm going to go further the other way just to prove a point that i'm not like you and i don't like you but mm. if you're from within that same group it's your friends mm. your family the people that you work with your neighbors the people you know start to talk and you do a lot of listening as well as the talking about climate change it helps all of us understand more and when we can understand more we can start thinking about how will this affect us and critically how can we respond because we know that hearing this pretty scary evidence can make some of us freeze and we either don't yeah. want to deal with it or we don't want to accept that it's true
3: mm. well that's why talking about positive solutions and what we can do about it because the, the knowledge is there you know, because what we're going to need now is not just to reduce emissions. We actually want negative emissions mm-hmm. to try and remove some of that CO2 from the air. And so that's where we start talking to agriculture. Can we increase soil fertility, um, um, stop or reduce deforestation, increase reforestation, and be really intelligent with how we go about agriculture and these practices so that we can actually benefit the climate. So again, it encourages this, um, these collaborations across disciplines.
0: Okay, I think that's a great note to leave it on. So thanks so much, Ali, Beck, Catherine, for coming on the show. Yeah, been really excellent today. Thanks, nice for
2: Tom. Thanks for that, Tom. Oh,
0: thank you, Tom. we <laughs> have been listening to Fuzzy Logic with Two XX Canberra Community Radio. I'm going to let you go now with the song Oxford Comma from the band Vampire Weekend. It's a fairly random choice, but I think the song is about keeping what's really important in perspective. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Bye.